Hi, everybody, and welcome to SEDScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me today as co-host is Riley Schnee, and our guest today is Morba Ja. So Morba is the associate professor for, sorry, the associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the holder of the Miss Hurley DeShiel Henderson Centennial Fellowship in Engineering, and that's a mouthful, but you got a lot of cool titles because you're a pretty cool person and you've done a lot. So we're excited to talk through your sort of areas and research and such. Uh, I guess the first thing we should probably have you do is just explain who you are and, and kind of what you do in the space area. Yeah, so uh, here at the University of Texas at Austin, um, I lead a transdisciplinary research program in space safety, security, and sustainability, really focused on trying to quantify, assess, and predict the behavior of human-made or anthropogenic objects uh, in space. Awesome. All right. And I think, Riley, that probably goes hand-in-hand with your question, right? Yeah. So I guess then when you're talking to people maybe who aren't as familiar with space debris and space traffic, what are the things that you tend to emphasize with them? Yeah, really what I'm trying to do mainly is is connect uh, space with Earth, oceans, atmospheres, and climates and say near-Earth space is a finite resource. We only have specific orbital highways where we put uh, satellites and much of the time, once these things die on orbit, they kind of stay there uh, for a very, very long time. And we have a growing number of participants that are making decisions in the absence of knowing the decisions that other people are making. So it's all kind of a recipe for disaster unless uh, we do something differently. Mm. Yeah, I'm personally very excited to get into the details on these topics. But before we get there, let's give a little bit of context. Can you tell us where you came from and how you first got interested in space? (laughs) Where I came from. That might be the subject of uh, another podcast, but I can say this. My my initial kind of impetus in being really interested in what's going on in space uh, happened once I was stationed in Montana as an enlisted person in the U.S. Air Force. I was a security policeman at Maelstrom Air Force Base. And uh, I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela, by the way. And uh, Caracas is a place with a lot of light at night, big city lights. And so on a good night in Caracas, you might be able to see the moon sort of thing. But uh, when I when I got to Montana, big sky country, um, really dark skies. I had never seen so many stars in my life. And so one of the things that I also was able to see were dots going across the sky that weren't meteors. They weren't planes. And uh, turns out these things were satellites and things that uh, humans had put into Earth orbit. And I think that really crystallized my my curiosity. And I said, I, I want to know more about that. Sure. And from, you know, being at the Air Force, what was your path to getting your PhD and eventually becoming a professor? Yeah. So, uh, you know, basically I had a, a bit of hard knocks uh, go- going on there. I, I decided to leave the Air Force after uh, four years of, of uh, service. I had enough. Um, I wanted to become an officer, but for a variety of reasons that didn't happen for me. So I decided to get out, maybe go to college. But um, yeah, I, I, I went to Daytona Beach to go to Embry-Riddle there. And um, I, I had a really rough time. Man, I you know work in two jobs. Nobody wanted to hire me for anything except being a cop because that's what I did in the in the service. And here I am wanting to study aerospace engineering and just not being able to make that happen. Um, I mean, it was it was pretty rough for me for a while. Ended up uh, um, 
even eating out of a dumpster for several months because I didn't have enough money for food and stuff. And um, I had a I had a soul soul searching uh, set of years and uh, emerged from that like the phoenix, and ended up going to Embry Riddle Aeronautical University in Arizona as a non traditional student and um, to study aerospace engineering. And uh, my academic advisor, he said why are you trying to study this stuff, man? You know, you're, you're a cop. You should like study industrial engineering, uh, uh, sorry, security or something like that. Like you're a security guard, like engineering is not for you. You know, the, he, he, he did the typical, uh, Yoda thing, the, you know, you're too old to begin the training kind of thing. And, um, I just stuck with it, man. Yeah. I was old and, uh, but I was, I was committed to, to learning more about stuff on orbit. So the rest is kind of history. Wow. That's, That's really crazy. And, yeah, the fact that you're able to push through and like kind of ignore what people are saying and be able to be where you are now is awesome. Um, what did you do when you were doing it? So eventually you made your way to Boulder. What did you do for your PhD thesis? Yeah, so my my thesis was um, it was Mars aerobraking state estimation from inertial unit data. And so what I wanted to do is having worked, uh, you know, some aerobraking missions with JPL, cause I got my master's, uh, at CU, uh, Boulder. And then I got offered a full-time position at JPL. And even though I was, I passed my, uh, qualifying exams to be a PhD, uh, candidate, um, you know, basically they said, listen, jobs at JPL don't come uh, by every day. So take it or leave it. And I said, well, okay, I'll take the job with the caveat that I want to finish the PhD and what JPL did is, um, you know, during Mars Odyssey, because Mars Odyssey was built by Lockheed and Littleton, uh, I was able to do my spacecraft navigator job for Odyssey from Littleton, uh, mm. during the night. And then during the day I was, uh, at CU trying to finish up my course requirements for the PhD. Wow. And so, you know, you're talking about this as arrow breaking and stuff of that sort. What turned you on to the stuff you're doing now with orbits and orbital you know, yeah, spacecraft? Yeah. So, so here, here's the thing, right? It's like um, I am really a truth seeker. And, and what I mean by that is give me a set of data that are incomplete, that are biased or corrupt. Say that there's something hidden there. Find it. And, and, and I want to go find it. In general, that's my drive. When it comes to uh, stuff in space, astrodynamics was the passion. And, and basically, astrodynamics is the science that studies motion of stuff in space. And so I wanted to understand that. You know, gravity and all the non-gravitational things like, you know, the influence of solar radiation pressure and thermal effects and all this other stuff. And the fascinating thing, uh, man, was that at JPL as a spacecraft navigator, they kind of honed me. My, whatever skills I got from uh, Boulder under my advisor, uh, the late George Bourne, who had done some time at JPL as well, it's like my job was to be a detective. One, every spacecraft, rover, orbiter, whatever, has its own kind of personality once it gets up in space. You can take pictures of it. You can try to calibrate stuff as much as you want. Uh, and it's funny because now we have, you know, missions getting to Mars right now, right? And then Perseverance is going to get there soon. So it's like I, I've, I've been through that several times uh, at JPL, and it's an amazing um, uh, experience. 
But once the thing's on orbit, then you have to figure out the personality of this uh, spacecraft. And yes, I uh, ascribe anthropomor uh, anthropomorphism uh, to, to these uh, inanimate objects. But it's like, here's the ideal path that this thing takes in space. Uh, but then you don't actually see it. Your, your way to see it is almost like you're this sonar person in a submarine through radio waves, right? Radio signals, mm -hmm. Doppler range measurements. You have to interpret photons to, in your mind, reconstruct kind of this 3D image of where's the sun, where's the earth, where's Mars, what's happening to this thing, how is it oriented? And so that's my thing. It's like in my mind's eye, I see all these things happening. I can, I can picture photons bombarding different surfaces. And it's like, this is what the data are trying to tell me about this object. And I have to sort that out. I have to unravel that. I have to solve an inverse problem to make sure that that satellite or that rover gets to where people intended it to be. And I only have times ticking for me to get that right kind of thing. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, pressure, right? It's like, trying to figure things out, being the best photon interpreter of the world, that sort of stuff. And so that's where that began. But then sometime in like 2006, I left JPL to move to Maui. Uh, my family's like, hey, uh, we love Maui. I went, I went there for a conference in 2004. And my family's like, yeah, the JPL thing, we're, we're done with Southern California. Find yourself a job on Maui. And so, so I did. I actually, I cashed in some United miles. I, I just booked a trip to Maui to go, uh, you know, searching for a job. And, uh, out of all the places where, uh, I said, Hey, I'll just show up and, and just tell you about myself and see if you're interested. One place said yes. And over a lunch break. And that's all it was in 90 minutes, man, I had a job offer because I convinced them that, that, that it was a flaw not to have me as part of their team. And so, uh, so yeah, so I relocated, uh, my family to Maui that removed me from doing stuff uh, related to Mars missions, but then that brought me back to Earth. And it turns out that uh, the Air Force Research Laboratory has facilities on Maui, has telescopes on top of Mount Haleakala, and that's when I became acquainted with the space traffic, space debris problem that we have. Yeah, and you were talking about visualizing, and one of the things I really love that you've built is that visualizer where you can see all of the different things that are in space, and you click on it, it pulls up in your browser, and you go, holy crap, there's right? so many of them. Yeah. And they're all grouped into these little areas. You've got your geo ring, and you've got this, you know, just in Leo, there's so many things. And it's it's very eye-opening because you always, like, hear it might be a problem. Then you see it, and you're like, how are we not having collisions every day? Mm -hmm. So what brought you to build that? What What told you that you needed to build a visualizer like that? Yeah, so once I was on Maui working for the Air Force Research Laboratory, um, the Department of Defense, let's, let's, let's start with where that population of, of anthropogenic space objects around Earth came from, right? It started off Sputnik, Soviet Union, space race, blah, blah, blah. You know, people kept on launching things, mainly three countries, the U.S., China, and Soviet Union. Um, and you know, the military and intelligence agencies have been launching stuff since, since then, 
but school bus size stuff, really expensive uh, hardware. But space was almost like the sanctuary because very few people had access. Now, as the years start going by, access is uh, more readily available. And now when the military opens its eyes and looks around, it sees all that stuff. So part of my job with the Air Force Research Lab was indications and warnings of threats. Basically, understand this anthropogenic space object population. What, what kind of uh, damage can any of these things do to assets that the U.S. government owns? And, you know, when I was a, a cop in the military, I had to, in order for me to say that's a threat, three things had to coexist. Intent, opportunity, and capability of somebody or something to do harm. So the opportunity and capability, those are the easier things to, to know because those are easier to measure. And so one of the things that I tell my students is, if you want to know something, you have to measure it. Measuring capability, ah, challenging. Measuring opportunity, easier. Measure intent. Where do I get one of those sensors? You don't find one out there, right? So very complicated, very difficult. And um, as I was studying this problem to try to help the U.S. government, it was like, wow, but at the same time, we've been polluting, you know, near Earth space. And living on Maui, I saw a huge uh, ecological unsustainability. It's like, wow, this is a small island, you'd think, very progressive in terms of recycling. No, 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 no. Recycling on Maui, horrible. Um, landfills, horrible. The hotel industry, maximizing single-use plastics. Man, it's like you couldn't, you, you can't walk around Maui without having a plastic bottle or something. It's like it tore me up. And so I started making a link between this ecological unsustainability, how certain indigenous people actually thrived on sustainability, and how uh, those people understand their roles as being custodians and stewards of life versus owners of stuff. And coupled with like a trip to Alaska, man, I had an inner shift and it's like, I need to become a space environmentalist. And so once I left the government to try this academic thing out, it turns out uh, most of my funding comes from the Department of Defense, so they kind of think that I, I'm, I, I know a few things about this and, and they agree. Um, it was like, look, we can't get to a safe, secure, and sustainable space environment unless we're transparent, unless we can make things more predictable, and unless we can develop a body of evidence that could be used to hold people accountable for their behaviors in space. And so Astrograph, what you see in the visualization, that's just the front end, because underneath that, it's a multi-source knowledge graph database that is trying to take massive quantities of disparate sources of information to link these to discover what could otherwise be hidden causal relationships amongst the participants and constituents of the space domain. So you're talking about this unsustainable sort of thing happening in space. Was it just that in the past... We've just been dumping spacecraft without plans to like deorbit them, or how did this get to be such a problem? Aha, aha. So here, um, let's use COVID and the current pandemic because that's a thing. Um, 
we keep on talking about flattening the curve, right? And the reason why we can't seem to be flattening curves is because people are not necessarily complying with what the science says. They're not social distancing, they're not masking, and so on and so forth. The biggest contributor to the growth of debris in space is lack of compliance with debris mitigation guidelines that experts around the globe, the scientists have said, hey, here's this checklist. If you do these things, it'll help flatten the curve. If everybody does this, this stuff, all our models say the curve will flatten out and might even start reducing a little bit. But there's a big lack of compliance with following those guidelines. So the thing is, how do you incentivize that compliance? Here's, here's how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen just by going up to people and saying, pretty please with sugar on top, could you just do this? That's not going to happen. And the guidelines, eh, I mean, they're loosely interpretable. Um, they're not necessarily law. They're guidelines uh, and that sort of thing. They're, they're recommendations. They're would be nice if you did blah, blah, blah. Okay? So my approach to this is... I'm not going to stop talking to the companies and governments. I'll keep on talking to them, but I'm going to do an and. I like being an and person, not an or person. So I'm going to do that. And I'm going to independently measure all this stuff and have a very public facing website. And I'm going to tell humanity this is what's happening. And I'm going to make it hard for regular human beings to not know that this is happening. So that's my approach. Mm -hmm. beyond that beyond like the public not knowing about this being an issue what can they do once they know is so it a matter of yeah yeah so here's what here's what i think right um the so the easiest thing is uh investing in spreading that awareness we have something called eyesonthesky.org which that whole project is to enroll humanity in this vision of space environmentalism and say look you are aware of what's happening to oceans, atmosphere, climate. There's an and there, and space. And these are the things that you depend on on a daily basis, technologies and whatnot, that are inherently provided by space-based capabilities. And none of these things are protected from loss, disruption, or degradation. So even if it's for no other reason that you like being able to go to the ATM and get cash or you like position navigation and timing, or these sorts of things, um, there is a reason that you should care about this. So that's that's number one. I can tell you right now that nobody, nobody, that runs for any sort of elected position, uh, if they run on a platform on of space environmentalism, look, elect me, and one of the first, on day one, I'm going to start removing rocket bodies. Game over. I guarantee that person's not going to win office, right? Because it's like, how are you going to produce jobs, clean water, education? So people just keep on thinking space is this other thing. It's not really relevant. I don't really need to care about it. Well, so once we can, you know, spread awareness, enroll humanity in the vision of space environmentalism, then the public can actually share that with folks that are running for office and saying, listen, I want you to take care of these things and this other thing as well. Again, it shouldn't be an or. 
It should be an and. Okay. Working off of that and statement, so that's what we should do for future satellites. What can we do for ones that are already up there? And like, is there a way to clean out stuff that's already up there? Are there any feasible solutions for that? Or are we sort of stuck with what we have and we need to make sure moving forward we're doing a better job? So I have some good news and some bad news. Um, The bad news is we probably have to learn to live in our current state of orbital filth. The bathwater will never be fully potable again. There's no way to clean space. To make space uh, this pristine environment that it was several decades ago, that's never going to happen. Just like we will never remove all the microplastics from the ocean. So that's, that's, it's game over when it comes to that. So that's the first thing that we need to accept. Then, to not make it like totally dire, like, oh, there's no need. No, no. So then what we need to do is we need to say, what are the super spreader events in space? Just like with a pandemic. I can tell you right now, super spreader events are very massive objects that are ticking time bombs that if they explode or if something collides with them and and they become tens, hundreds of thousands of smaller pieces, that's bad news. So even in astrograph, you go to astrograph right now, you're going to see this like uh, ellipse uh, of pink dots. All those pink dots came from one one parent rocket body that within the past two years exploded in this Atlas upper stage. One thing Mm -hmm. exploded and birthed tens of of thousands of, of objects. That's bad news. So we already know where those rocket bodies are. Here's the thing. The owners of the rocket bodies are the U.S., China, and Russia. And should I spend money to remove these things, right? Whereas the, there needs to be public pressure, I think, to be able to do those sorts of things. And I think one other thing to add to this is that if we accept that near-Earth space is a finite resource in need of environmental protection, then we need to define sustainability metrics. Like, okay, what is the carrying capacity for a given orbital highway? What is that? Let's define that. Let's define a carbon footprint analog that I'm calling a space traffic footprint, loosely understood as the burden that any given object poses on the safety and sustainability of anything else. If we have a space traffic footprint and we have a definition for orbital carrying capacity, then we can say, okay, in this orbit highway, has the capacity been saturated? If somebody wants to launch stuff, we can use that in a regulatory framework say, hey, the capacity gets saturated at 5,000 and you want to, you're, you say you want to put, put 10,000 things there, you don't get to do that. You only get a license to, I don't know, launch 3,000 things. That capacity is leased to you, for instance. Or if there's a rocket body that is taking up capacity and it's this dead thing, um, I want to start moving towards non-consensual debris removal because right now, any given piece of debris that's associated with a launch state, uh, the launch state is liable for that thing. Launch state is defined by the UN treaty uh, as the country, uh, the state where the thing was launched, uh, the territory or facility from where it was launched, or the state that procured the launch. Those are the three definitions, right? So it's like, <clears throat> if that piece of junk is, I don't know, some some Chinese uh, rocket body, say, the U.S. can't just go and get that out. 
But what I want to prevent is any country from just sitting with their arms folded and saying, well, you know, you can't touch it because I don't give you permission. Well, but it's taking up space, space that could be used by something that provides a service and a benefit to humanity. So just like private citizens can't just go to a car on the side of the road that might be in the way and just move it, uh, we need to kind of have a tow truck system, some third party that we could say, okay, this thing is taking up capacity. We gave this launching states this much time to remove it. Um, because they didn't do that, now they've forfeited this blah, blah, blah. Now we're going to use this tow truck kind of thing to remove it. And maybe there's a tax that these people need to pay because they didn't get rid of their piece of junk that was taken up capacity. That's the direction that we need to head into, in my opinion. Do these newer constellations like Starlink or Kuiper have some sort of compliance to, you know, either deorbit themselves or move into an orbit that's a little less crowded? How do you feel about the new constellations that are, you know, thousands of satellites? Yeah. So, I mean, I've had conversations with um, folks both at SpaceX, Kuiper and others. And in general, people want to do the right thing, but people are going to do the legal thing. And if the right thing is beyond what the legal thing is, there's not a whole lot of incentive to go beyond that, okay? So uh, when it comes to debris mitigation, yeah, the FCC, for instance, that's part of the licensing process. Give me this document that says that you're going to comply with debris mitigation, blah, 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 and that you've done some analysis to show that your probability of collision is less than one and blah, 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 and this and that, right? So the companies do that. They give it to the FCC. The FCC has this international satellite division bureau with just a handful of people that are under-resourced, understaffed. There's no way that they can do independent analysis to be the checks and balances to verify and validate this analysis. So by and large, it's like, okay, when I read this thing, how grossly inaccurate does this look like or whatever? And it's just a plan, right? Um that's not to say, okay, well, what happens when, once the stuff is in orbit? It's like, who's measuring this stuff? Who's monitoring for compliance? Which is another thing that I've started doing last year, Graph, is monitoring for compliance against guidelines, laws, and that sort of stuff. Because you can't manage what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't measure. So it all comes down to measuring. And um, I think a lot of these constellations in low Earth orbit they want to get away with the, oh, well, there's a 25-year rule to deorbit. The altitude that I'm at means that in five years, the thing's going to burn up in Earth's atmosphere. I'm just going to let Mother Nature take care of this thing for me. Well, that 25-year rule didn't really account for the fact that there might be tens of thousands of things in LEO and the detriment of collision risk to all these things just kind of cascading with whatever Mother Nature decides uh, to see happen. So I think the 25 year rule is a bad, bad thing at this point. It needs to be, there needs to be rigorous analysis to, 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 to reevaluate that a and B simply saying, Oh, well, my stuff's going to reenter in five years. So I'm okay. Well, how well can you predict the flight path of that? How well are you going to be able to tell other people and alert them way, way, way ahead of time to maybe get out of the way or that sort of stuff? And that's assuming that people can get out of the way. There's stuff up there that just is dead. And so what about the things that can't move? Like, what's the risk with those sorts of things? Like, nobody has 
put together a digital twin, a virtual replica of the space domain to play all these things out to include the decision-making criteria and risk posture that the different mega constellation people have. Because I can tell you right now, somebody might think, oh, 1e to the minus 4 probability of collision three days out. I'm not worried. Somebody else might say, hey, I don't like that. I'm going to move out of the way. So it's not like there's even, there's not an even practice of space operations. You know, there might be, in general, common knowledge about orbital mechanics and that sort of stuff, but the practice of the common knowledge is not common. It's actually very individualized. And the participants that are making decisions are doing so in the absence of knowledge of how other people are making decisions. And yet, the decisions that they're making are dependent on the unknown decision-making criteria of everybody else. I got to tell you, uh, if if somebody could define what tragedy of the commons was, that sounds a whole lot like it to me. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking with a policy person earlier this week that's going to be on the podcast and tragedy of the commons was the exact phrase they used when we were talking about it as well. Um, so what do you think should, if you had to choose, if you were given the opportunity, would you create an international governing body? Would it be something that falls under a different organization? How would you want to structure some sort of office that holds people accountable for their space debris? This is what I would like to do. Um, I think working with the UN is not a bad thing. Uh, I think we could, I think we could uh, commit to being better stewards and custodians of near earth space. We could commit to doing something under a UN banner. We could explore that for instance not reinventing wheels, but basically, you know, member member states could provide capabilities under the UN banner for, for this to be like an international kind of thing. We could define these sustainability metrics immediately, the space traffic footprint, the uh, orbital carrying capacity, and agree to use these things. Much like, you know, look, if you want to launch something, you're an American company, you're SpaceX, you want to put something up there, before you, even after you get through the national process, part of what you need to do also is you need to go to the ITU to get spectrum allocated if you're going to be communicating, right? Uh, you're going to get from this frequency to that frequency to make sure you don't interfere with somebody else. Just like the ITU can allocate spectrum, I think that an organization like that, maybe under the UN, could allocate orbital capacity. That even though you go through whatever your process is in your own nation state, you have to go by this one thing, this international organization to get the capacity allocated to you. And if that doesn't close with your design and all that other stuff, then you don't get to lunch. Okay. Yeah. I feel like it's gotta be an immensely complex process to get that underway, but what you're saying makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you see a way for that to happen anytime in like the next 10 to 20 years? I, I do. And I think the best way for it to happen is making the behavior and the consequences, intended and unintended consequences of our behavior in space, very public. Mm -hmm. Then it's going to look. I mean, one of the things that I started doing is I grabbed the whole of the, um, the United Nations has a treaty on registering space objects. Right. Uh, and basically it says, you know, domestic, you know, each nation state, each launch state needs to have its own domestic registry. And then uh, as soon as is practicable, those are the words, 
as soon as it's practicable, register with the UN. And um, I decided to scrape uh, all the PDFs and all this other stuff that's on their websites, bring that in an astrograph and actually start tracking what's the lag time. What's the lag time by country on actually submitting this? What does as soon as is practicable mean? I have to tell you, for some countries, it's years, man. The thing's been on orbit for years before they submit, you know, send the facts in or whatever. My guess is that, um, you know, because it's very loosely interpreted, that that's not very useful. Like, that's not helpful for you to register your object five years after the thing's been on orbit or even, you know, the thing's dead. And then you like, oh, well, you know, here's. So I think we don't need. We don't need new laws and new organizations. We need to make better use of the ones that are currently in place. But we need to have awareness of how people are interpreting stuff, how people are implementing things, who's compliant and who isn't without prescribing any sort of judgment to that, uh, good or evil. You just, hey, facts are you comply, you don't comply. I'd love to know why, right? Make that very public. And I think that will start illuminating what that path of harmony might look like. Okay. So you've done a lot of Ted talks. You do a lot of speaking engagements and such. What are the ways that you're helping to spread awareness? And what are the points, like the main points you're pushing across when you're talking to people, especially if they're not in the space industry and maybe don't think this is an issue? Yeah. So for the majority of my career, I try to focus on being a technical expert. So that was journal articles and, you know, professional societies and these sorts of things. And uh, I realized that it's a bit, you know, space, the space community, big echo chamber, self-licking ice cream cone, lots of groupies, people that, you know, believe in the messianic movement of Elon Musk and want to, you know, groupies of astronauts and stuff. And we, we, it's like, Total idolatry, man. It's crazy. It's like space is this pristine thing. Only the rich, famous, and, and, and yada yada have access to it. And yet it's the one thing that actually connects humanity, our sky. Our sky is common. And it's like, that's where we come from. We are stardust. We come from the stars. That's, that's what we are. Except that it's been kind of made into this inaccessible thing. When I became a TED Fellow... Uh, on the, on their 10th anniversary of the fellows. And I had my five minute, uh, Ted talk. I'm like, wow, I, I, right now I'm getting close to 2 million views of that five minute talk. And man, I couldn't even get like 10,000 views of, of, of anything in my own space circle. And right. so I, re I realized, mm -hmm. I realized humanity is not enrolled in the space vision. If I go to every space conference and I'm on stage and I'm talking to people, but I'm seeing the same faces and I do one TED talk and I reach 2 million, I need to do more of that. And mm -hmm. I realized I need to be a science communicator. I need to be a public figure and engage in public writing and normalize this and democratize it and let people know this is part of their heritage. And look, indigenous people have lived for tens of thousands of years with this idea of uh, ecological sustainability. We need to learn from them and apply that to space and yada, yada, yada. So my, 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 uh, my evangelism, 
is to basically talk to regular people, use terms that everybody can understand, um, go as far away from the ivory tower and the elitist stuff that many space people hold on to and say, you know what, this is not as mysterious as people might make you think and you can understand this stuff and this is actually, you should have a voice in what happens because, um, you know, part of your own livelihood depends on it. Yeah. I was also new to the topic of space debris and I thought watching your animated TED Ed video was very informative about just how big of an impact that this could have on us. And I'd recommend to all of our listeners that they all watch it because it really opened my eyes to it as being an issue. And it's something that now like I will be keeping an eye out for. So I do appreciate like how you've brought this to the public light. And I, I think that it's really important work. Well, I, I appreciate it. And I'll, I'll even say this, right? It's like, um, one of the things that I do is a, a bi-monthly webcast called uh, Space Cafe Morbus Vox Populi, which is in my background here. And yesterday was uh, the, the uh, I did a session yesterday. The next one's going to be in April. And yesterday's theme, uh, so Vox Populi means people's people's voice, because that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. And yesterday's theme was the role of theology in space sustainability and exploration. And the thing is, you know, um, where we were born, where we grew up, we have beliefs. We have some people uh, have faiths. That is a lens through which they not only perceive things but interact with the rest of the world. And to think that that doesn't happen is like ridiculous. So why aren't we having conversations like that? I, you know, I had uh, somebody on 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 uh, my session. I had uh, the director of the Vatican Observatory. So I had the Catholic pers perspective. I had Protestant perspective. Uh, I had Islamic, Jewish, um, and, and even Buddhist. And it was like getting that perspective on how, would, how should we explore space? How should we behave in this common environment? That sort of stuff um, was very enlightening. And it turns out people want peace at the end of the day. People want peace. And people recognize that in order to get there, there needs to be mutual respect. Let's, there's a lot of common ground, actually. Some people say, well, we're all sinners and we still should do good. Other people don't believe that such a thing exists, but we should still do things that aren't damaging. Like there is a place to harmonize this. Religion and science don't need to be viewed as things that are mutually exclusive of each other and that sort of stuff. So anyway, I thought... That's the sort of conversation I'm trying to have with people. Yeah, that must have been very interesting. Is that recorded or no? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. Wait, we should probably just do this now. Can you like let everybody know where they can find out more about you and like listen to these sorts of conversations you're yeah. having? So so I uh, I recently uh, started a page uh, under flow.page slash Moriba, and you can find everything about my um, you know, uh, webcast series, uh, Morbus Vox Populi, everything about uh, my op-ed column with uh, Aerospace America called Johnaverse, even my uh, PhD dissertation, which um, uh, I'm extremely embarrassed of when I look at it. But hey, it, it is what I did. So I just put, put myself out there that way because uh, I like being transparent. I tell people, you know, the wind blows through me kind of thing. Um, and um yeah, I even have my CV and, and research program, like everything there, astrograph, all that stuff is at flow.page uh, forward slash Moriba. 
Sweet. So yeah, I definitely recommend people check it out. And yeah, look at the, is it Astro or Astria? Astria. Astria. Okay, my bad. Yeah. No worries. Yeah, you guys should definitely go check it out. It's really cool and very enlightening. So we've got about five minutes left. I think we'll do our two advice questions. So Riley, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. So um, since you are in such a fascinating field, and I know that you're not the only one in it, um, what would you say for people who are interested in getting involved? Since I'm sure they all have different pads. Yeah, um, I think that being willing to explore your own curiosity and not letting somebody else's opinion become your reality. So all through my path, there were so many people that told me, not you, you can't, no, do something different, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to let their opinion become my reality. And I just pressed forward and I was hungry. I was hungry to, to really satisfy my, my, my intellectual curiosities. And, and yeah, and eventually you'll get to where you need to get to. Awesome. Great. Thanks. And, you know, the last question we usually ask is about advice for young people. And, you know, over half of our listeners are people in their 20s, all over the place, people in college, people working, people who knows what everywhere and even international. So with such like a broad young audience, what is your advice to young people? So I, I would say my advice to, to young people is um, you can actually do a lot more than maybe you believe yourself capable of. And um, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you in the following ways. One that you, uh, you explore the hypothesis that all things are interconnected. Um, That when you choose to act, that you do what you can to act from a place of compassion uh, because we need that. And to be courageous in all that you do. And I will say this. My definition of courage is the following. Courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. Courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. I suffer from anxiety big time. I've gotten panic attacks, which I've kind of been able to regulate a bit with diet and exercise and these sorts of things. Um, I'm afraid a lot, but I don't let the fear stop me. I move with the fear. I move. The universe is dynamic. I'm not going to allow myself to be stopped by fear. I will not be paralyzed by it. So that is the challenge I set for myself. And to me, that's courage. Courage isn't being fearless because what are you being courageous about? Courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. So I challenge you to be courageous. Wow. Thank you. Thank that you was very words. deep. I like I like the idea of challenging us. I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wrapping up, uh, social stuff. People can find you on Twitter, on LinkedIn. What is your, What are your handles for those sorts so of things? So all of that is at flow.page slash more. Okay. All that stuff, my LinkedIn, Instagram, all that. Perfect. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about, whether it be space traffic, debris? I know that I'm sure there's a ton, but is there anything really, really big that we missed? Um, I guess not really, except for the fact that um, this is all about connection, 
really, at the end of the day. It's like, what is this all about? It's about connection. It's about, we are a species. We want to extend our expiration date as much as possible. We want peace. We want harmony. Uh, we want to be able to have a fulfilling life and, and be happy. But it's about connection. Connection with people. Connection with things. Connection with other life or whatever. And it's like, that's the discussion that this needs to be about. Astrodynamics is cool. The space debris is important. But it's about human connectivity. And, and, and basically making people realize that that connection goes beyond what they see in the mirror. It also goes uh, as far as the eye can see, literally and, and figuratively. Well, I think those are great words to close on. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Morba, for joining us. Thanks, Riley, for co-hosting. And uh, we'll sign off. Hope you guys enjoyed. And we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.